Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. I hope you had a chance to listen to Susie Larson today. Maybe you caught Carmen in the morning and everything in between. If you have Faith Radio on throughout the day, I bet you learn a lot because I know I do when I tune it in. And I think today is going to be one of those days where you're going to learn a lot, especially if you have your own question to ask because it is now time for Guide Talk or Guys Who Talk, which means any question you have, we're welcome to... Uh, Text it over, 877-933-2484. I've got my power panel uh, in place. And uh, I think before we start, I think I need to play my disclaimer. Uh, why would you play the disclaimer today? Today's panel may resemble last week's panel, and any coincidence to real-life characters is purely coincidental. Take the time now to ask any questions of any difficulty regarding the Bible or faith, Jesus, or anything on your mind. All difficult questions will be handled by Greg B., Tom P., or Jeff V. Any easy ones will also be handled by them or possibly the host. No one is compensated for their appearance today, and any whining about pizza is extremely nonproductive. There you go. There's the today's <laughs> disclaimer. I love it. My panel today is Greg B., Tom P., and Jeff V. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank good you. To good here, to be here, Bill. I think it's good. good afternoon, to, Bill. I think it's just good to have the disclaimer, uh, just to keep everyone in line. <laughs> it, it works. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You I pay agree. attention to it. Yeah, I agree. So I notice it's getting longer and longer. Yeah, it'll probably be the first 10 minutes of the show in about a week. <laughs> <laughs> but we're looking for your questions, 877-933-2484. All right, gentlemen, let's get started. Uh, what advice do you have for witnessing to someone who doesn't care about what happens after they die. Mm. Well, I don't care what happens after I die. What do you say to that that person? I've, I love those kind of people because they're kidding themselves. Of course they care about what happens after they die. And I've had the pleasure of being with some of them at the moment they died, and it was amazing how they wanted to know what was going to happen next, mm. even though they had never talked about it. So basically what you do with somebody like that is you, you spend a lot of time listening, and I, I would keep asking them, so why have you come to that conclusion? Obviously, you've studied all the, the scriptures, and you've heard everything Jesus has said, and it doesn't mean anything to you. And I, I force people, part of it is, in a loving way, I want to force people to rethink what they're thinking. Because most of the people have found, use these phrases as a cliche to avoid a conversation, and you got to get around the cliche to get to the real conversation, which is their personal fears, things that are not there. And here's the other thing, Bill. I believe Solomon was right in Ecclesiastes 3. He said, eternity is in our hearts. It's in their hearts, too. They just don't want to talk about it or they're afraid to talk about it. And so I want to keep the door open and keep talking. One of the things I think I would do is ask them, what kind of a mark do you think you're going to leave <clears throat> this earth? In other words... What kind of residuals, what kind of artifacts are going to remain after you're gone to know that you've walked this earth? But most importantly, what's going to be the quality of whatever you're going to leave? And so in order to go ahead and leave something of quality, I want to encourage you to consider the claims of the gospel because it's only when you align yourself with your creator are you going to be able to find out what you have been wired to do and be and so that the quality of your life can improve and you'll be having a positive impact on people around you. And so I, I, that's what I would do is I'd try to engage them at least 
in the temporal side of their existence before we got to the eternal side of their existence. Well said, Greg B. Jeff, you got anything? Yeah, you know, there's this famous video of a guy by the name of Dr. William Provine. I, th I think it was used in the Truth Project by Del Tackett is maybe where I saw it, but I, I can't specifically remember. But he he is in front of a podium giving a lecture. He's kind of a famous atheist. And he was making the case when you're dead, you're dead. There's nothing more to it. You just die. You're, you return to the earth. And in that sense, he's right, right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You return to the earth from which you came. And but he didn't believe that there was anything after death. There was no nothing of a person that survives after physical death. But then it's really interesting. He goes on to say, and if I'm wrong, at least I won't be with those Christians. Right. All these people that he kind of despised, thought they were wrong, thought they you know, we're too religious and he didn't think religious people were, were worth much. And he said, and if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, you hear that little doubt? Yeah. I think what Tom oh, was saying yeah. it earlier, they really believe they may say it, but deep down, they know there's something more. Ecclesiastes three says that God has placed eternity in every man's heart. I think every man has an understanding understanding that there's something after this life. Mm -hmm. You know, we can go ahead and bluster uh, up until the point where we know we're, it's going to be just a short time and we're going to be gone. All of a sudden, all that bluster disappears and the things you're talking about, Tom and, and, and Jeff, about Ecclesiastes 3.11, about God placing eternity in each man's soul, and that's so he knows what God's done from the beginning to the end, will compel men to ask, you know, a variation of three different questions. Why am I here? Am I making any advancement? And will what I do have any lasting impact? And so I think appealing to them on those three purposes that we can't claim in origination because God's placed it in the heart of man to ask those kinds of questions, men and women, that uh, will resonate with them and help them to rethink what their position is. But the bluster goes just when you're ready to go. <laughs> when we talk about feelings, we're driven right now in a world by feelings. And I think the Bible doesn't say uh, that because you feel a certain way, that is what God wants for you. Um, we can get caught up in, in loving darkness instead of light. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden we say, well, you know, God, God has led me to this place. God has made me who I am. God has, um, God has given me, uh, my life and I'm going to live it the way he has designed me to live it, even though you've been deceived by Satan. Yeah, I think most people that I've counseled with uh, live in kind of a, a fantasy approach to the world. I agree. That say, hey, you know, this is how I feel. This is what I believe, whatever. My role as a, a Christian pastor, as a hopefully a friend, is to keep challenging them and asking them, where are you getting that information from? How do you know that's true? You know, what evidence do you have that backs that up? And I will be honest with you, people that come in and want to talk to me and all they have are feelings. You know, I don't feel I love my wife anymore. I don't have the feelings I used to in that. Are usually some of the most miserable people, Bill, I've ever met. Mm -hmm. Because they have no finality in their life. They have no real purpose or structure. And as Greg was saying, when you don't have that purpose or that structure, uh, then all that's left for most people are feelings. And it tells me these people need to hear you know, that there's something beyond them 
that makes a lot of sense, and they need to come around and pay attention to that. You know, a person's well-being um, is not determined by a perception of what truth is. Now, some people will say today, my perceptions are my reality. Well, they're not. Reality is truth. So the idea is if you have a perception of reality that's based on feelings, as you suggest, Bill, then you're going to adjust your expectations against um, something that's not real. And so the question you can ask them, well, how's that working out for you? How have your feelings led you? Where where are you going because of your feelings? So consequently, uh, if you want a sense of significance or satisfaction in your life, you've got to get a grasp of reality. Exactly. And not your perception of reality. My truth doesn't end where your nose begins because we believe in absolute truth. So until they understand that their perceptions are not reality, they're going to be like a roller coaster like we've been suggesting. How do, you, we, how do we stay invitational, though, without yeah. coming across confrontational? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is listening to people, letting them share what they do. I think invitational contains challenge. It doesn't contain abrasiveness. We're not trying to win the argument. We're not trying to make them look like fools. We're not trying to put them in their place. What we're doing is trying to challenge their worldview and their thinking. And sometimes, you know, the easiest way to do that is I've had, I remember I had somebody come in and say exactly what we're hearing here. And I've said, tell me, how does that work when you go to the bank? You know, oh, I got a million dollars in the bank. I want to take a hundred thousand out. The bank teller looks at your account and sees you got, you know, $57. Are you going to get the money? And they usually laugh at me and say, well, no, I wouldn't get under those circumstances. I said, then what is the basis of truth for what you're doing? And I try to keep it non-confrontational. The advantage I personally have had is that it has opened the door to a lot of invitations. Not always, but in many times it does. You know, Paul says to let your conversation always be seasoned with grace. We should approach our conversations in grace and in truth. If you're just speaking truth, it can come off as being harsh. But if you're just loving people, just full of grace, you know, and you're missing the truth, well, you can love people, uh, you know, into a Christless eternity, right? Without sharing the truth with them. So there's this balance between grace and truth. You bring truth Mm -hmm. to people in a loving way, caring way, because Mm -hmm. God loves them. They are made in the image of God and God wishes none to perish. And we should have a heart like God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Scripture says that be prepared to give an offense for the hope that's in you. But when you do that, it's with gentleness and respect. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so we're, we're on the top of a 10-story building, and I say to Tom Parrish, Tom, if you take one more step, you're going to go off the ledge and fall 10 stories, and gravity's going to kill you. And you say, well, <laughs> that's your interpretation of gravity. I, I understand gravity very differently. And so, I take the step, and you watch me go down. I get it, but I'm saying, well, how in, in, invitational should I be at that point? How much should I be listening at that point? Because you're about to kill yourself. You know, good parenting, you know, what does the Bible say? Good parenting, don't spare the rod. You don't beat your children, but you also don't let them get away with stuff. There's a point where you finally say to them, no, I'm sorry, honey, that's not right. You've got to rethink this. You know, you've got to go back and redo this. And I think what I've had to guard against, and I'm just as guilty, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But sometimes in wisdom, the Holy Spirit wants to stir people up so they say, yeah, I am on a 10-story building and one more step and I'm going to fall. How do I get off the building? 
And if people do that, then you can help them. If they're unwilling to do that, they usually take the step and their life goes on the way it does. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you've got to, to assess how far down the road to spiritual suicide are they. In other words, when a child rushes out into the middle of traffic, you're yelling at that child and trying to pull them from safety and telling right. them not to do that again. What drove that? Well, they could have lost their life. Right. It was impending danger. <clears throat> so when you sit down with somebody, if there's a if you sense there's a danger to that they're going to be entering into a Christless eternity, well then it may be time for some stark truth. Yeah. But it can be delivered um you know, when we talk about feelings and you talk about delivering it with love, you're not talking about, if you take a look at what Scripture says is love, which is having a genuine concern for the well-being and welfare of another individual, even when they're unlovable. Well, part of that genuine concern for their well-being and welfare is sometimes telling them something they don't want to hear sure. because they're in great danger. They're in great peril at the moment. Uh, they could be moving into a cult. They could, you know, whatever that danger is. Mm-hmm. But you have to sometimes just the unvarnished truth, but delivered in a way that demonstrates you have a genuine concern for their well-being and their welfare. And what I always say is, when you do that, you leave the bridge up. You don't burn the bridge between you and that person so that they can come back across. Even if they don't like it at the moment, I have had people come back to me weeks, sometimes months, and in a few occasions years, and say, do you remember when you say this? You said this to me. It really bothered me, and I didn't like what you said. However, it was one of the best things that could have ever been said. The other thing is, is that when you're when you're having to give rough truth or, or, or cold truth, if you if you want to phrase it that way, it's always good to do it in the first person. When you're talking to somebody who is on a precipice or is in danger, you're saying, "Well, let me tell you what I believe about this situation. Here's what my understanding is. Here's what." Um, I would uh, consult as I'm facing the same situation as you are. So you're taking on your shoulders and you're not condemning. You're not pointing your finger at them. You're, you're giving them a message, but you're doing it in the first person and from the context of your own life. Good I word. remember seeing a, an old dictionary definition of the word reality, what is real. And part of the definition was as God sees things. <laughs> because he sings, wow. he sees things perfectly, right? I don't think our modern dictionaries would include that definition. <laughs> well, I was going to say that's probably and, banned now. <laughs> and that's right. Yeah. But it's as God sees things because he sees things perfectly in mm-hmm. reality. And yes, people can be taken captive by lies. They can believe things that aren't true. They can have a skewed sense of reality and they don't believe the, the truth. Um, you know, men love the darkness because their deeds were evil, the book of John says. So, I mean, that's where a lot of lost people are. And and coming to a person in grace and truth doesn't mean that you don't correct them and teach them. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16, a lot of people say, yeah, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. But remember what comes next, yeah. teaching, rebuking, and correcting and training in righteousness. So yes, yeah. there are times that an individual needs correcting and rebuking, again, in the spirit of truth and grace. Greg, I appreciate that you say to talk about your situation, do it in the first person. Because, uh, you know, I'm I'm bothered by people that talk in the third person. I mean, you're, you're never going to hear Bill Arnold talk that way, just so you know. <laughs> 
I'm just going to let you know. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, more Guy Talk, lots of it ahead. Let me know what questions you have, 877-933-2484. Be right back. You've probably heard me talk about hope quite a bit this season, and I think it's because we need to hear more about it. We need to encourage one another with hope. We need to build one another up with the hope that we have in Christ. And if you are feeling lonely, or maybe you are having periods of disappointment or despair, and you need hope, we want you to know that you can always come to God's Word for hope. Hope will always be there for you waiting. And if you are struggling to make it to the next moment, I want you to be able to text the word HOPE to 877-933-2484. It is time for Guy Talk, or guys who talk. Let me know what questions you would like me to ask them on your behalf. You can always remain anonymous. I don't think we usually mention names anyway. So 877-933-2484. Here's a question, gentlemen. Uh, Curious about your thoughts on whether or not King Saul was regenerate. We see in 1 Samuel 10, the spirit rushing on him and God giving him a new heart. But his later life shows little to no evidence of walking with God. I think what you have to understand that in Old Testament times, the Spirit didn't take up permanent residence in your soul. Yeah. It was given to you for a particular mission or a calling or a particular issue that, that, that uh, God wanted you to deal with. And so, you know, Saul just betrayed his own, um, the own, his own health of his soul. Uh, as you see him progress into deeper and deeper darkness, there may have been a time when he was walking with God um, but that's when the spirit overcame him. He prophesied and so forth. But the fact of the matter is it didn't take up permanent residence. So he ended up squandering the authority that he was given by God to be king because he assumed prerogatives that weren't his. He was impatient, and uh, his life indicated such. I mean, he look at how long he went after David for almost 15 years to try and kill him. And so it just, he revealed again what the condition of his heart was. But Point is, is that the spirit didn't take up permanent resonance in Old Testament characters at that time. What I find interesting yeah, I, I, about Christian human nature, and and I'm, I believe very strongly in eternal salvation, as we talk about here. But I, I want to clarify what that means. We're always asking about eternal salvation for somebody who has is not walking in a relationship with the Lord, as compared to people who are. And as I understand the scriptures, our relationship with Jesus begins when he brings us to faith and, you know, we're born again. And he means for that to continue. Now, what happens to people, I don't know. I don't know their hearts. I don't know where they're at. I don't know about King Saul. But I know this. My goal in talking with people is not, hey, your son went to church 50 years ago here, but he hasn't been back. He's had 10 wives and he's been in in and out of jail. But is he still saved? My attitude is, have you asked him? Have you asked him right now? Who is Jesus? Is he Lord? Are you serving him now? Because today is the only day we have for declaring who Jesus is. Nicely done, Tom Parrish. Uh, Jeff, Jeff, go ahead. 
Yeah, the you know, no nobody in the Old Testament was born again. Right? As Greg was saying that nobody received the spirit as promised by Jesus in the New Testament after the cross where God says you will receive the Holy Spirit and he will be with you forever. Yeah. And so the spirit came upon people in an anointing kind of way uh for service like like we've been talking about. Now, so so God took his spirit away from uh, from Saul. I, I think it's First Samuel 16, and it says the, the spirit departed from Saul. However, you have to remember, even though nobody was born again, the path to salvation in the Old Testament was really the same as it is in the New Testament, and that is by faith. Remember, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So how was Abram, Abraham saved? By faith, just as we are today. Now, their experience in salvation was different than ours, that it is now. Now, when you believe and are saved, you're born again. You're justified. You're forgiven. You you are made a new creation. You receive the Holy Spirit, and He will be with you forever, and on and on. That didn't happen before the cross. So I, I think Saul's faith was still there, even though God took the anointing of the Spirit away from him. All right, let's move on. Here's a question. I find this one very interesting. I read the book of Philemon today. It is only one chapter, and it doesn't seem to have any meaning or message. Why is that book included in the Bible, and what are we to get out of it? We could well, spend the next hour on this one. We sure could. So mm-hmm. I'm going to turn to the professor. Greg, you want to tell us what it means? What? Leading off Lehman. for the team. <laughs> the professor, Greg Borgon. Well, first of all, you know, it starts off, Paul's greeting, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to uh, Philemon, our, our beloved fellow worker, and uh, is our sister, Aphia, and, and another fellow soldier in the church of, of your choice. So he talks about his love for faith. He talked, uh, Paul, plea for Onesius, who was um, the um, uh, master of the slave, who that this book is about, and the attitude that the slave should have as a result, or excuse me, the other way around, Onesi, mm-hmm. uh, Onesi, On, I can't pronounce his name, Onesimus, Onesimus yes. uh, was the slave, and he appeals to Philemon to go ahead and give him a, a, a grace. So it's all about attitude, I think, and how you treat another follower uh, of Christ. In that day and age, for this book to be written, was so revolutionary, I can't even state it, because Paul is telling Philemon to look at Onesimus, who was his servant, as a brother in Christ. And that didn't happen in the slave world. And that hasn't happened in the slave world almost anywhere. But suddenly now you've got a change of understanding of what it means when someone serves you or someone is under your authority, especially if they're a Christian, mm-hmm. how to treat them. Now, it'd be good if we treated everybody that way, regardless but this is, uh, and, and for the, list, the person who wrote in, I would say this book is so revolutionary that I think we missed the point today. Because back we then, have a, we have nobody a, talked about this. We have a real-life example of someone who was a slave and now is freed and now is to be accepted as a dear brother, as uh, uh, Philemon says uh, about in the middle of the chapter. And you have this situation where we, outside of Christ, 
are slaves to sin. We are slaves. We're slaves to the world and the flesh and the devil and, and slaves to sin. And when we have put our faith in Christ, we become free, freedmen. And, and that freedom that we now have in Christ, by the way, we're now brothers. We're co-heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance. God is our father. We're adopted into his family. We're made children of God. All that that happens to us in Christ is represented in this small little story near the back of the New Testament. You look at verse 1. It's just amazing. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. There ought to be rockets going off here. Paul is hmm. identifying himself as a slave. He is a servant. He is a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He isn't under his own control anymore. And yet Paul was highly respected, especially by Philemon and others. And Paul's saying, understand, that's the role you're now in as the, quote, slave owner. You have authority, but now treat him as a brother. Mm. You know, astounding. one of the practical applications of that of this book is that, you know, that we can draw from this is that employers and political leaders and even corporate executives and parents, for that matter, can follow the spirit of Paul's teaching by treating Christian employees or co-workers or family members as members of Christ's body. So Christians, as one scholar put it, Christians in modern society must not view helpers as stepping stones to help them achieve their ambitions, but as Christian brothers and sisters who must receive gracious treatment. In addition, all Christian leaders must recognize that God holds them accountable for the treatment of those who work for them. Whether the help, whether the helpers are Christians or not, they must eventually answer to God for their actions. So uh, I, there's a lot of lessons you can draw from this in terms of relationships, especially in our society today, I think. It's huge. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. The Gospel of Matthew details Joseph and Mary's travels to Egypt with baby Jesus to escape from Herod. Yet Luke's Gospel does not mention this event. Why? Well, I haven't gotten into Matthew's mind or Luke's mind, and I'm being serious about that. They each wrote with their own intention as led by the Spirit. They were talking to a particular group of people. For whatever reason, Luke didn't include this in his narrative about the birth. And that's why we're blessed now, because the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, has given us all four Gospels so that we get at least two narratives of the uh, the birth of Jesus and what happened as a result. But, of course, Matthew, uh, who he's writing to, the whole thing with Egypt is just a complete parallel to Israel being in Egypt and then, you know, being set free. Jesus went to Egypt as a baby to be protected from Herod, but then the Lord called him back. And you've got this—I remember one old pastor said to me, he said, if you understand that Jesus in the New Testament is literally Israel reduced to one— it begins to make a little more sense. Not that, you know, Israel's still Israel, but we're saying Jesus repeated in his life, even as an infant here, he went to Egypt, his parents took him there to escape and then came back. Pretty amazing stuff. And so uh, each has their own audience, their own direction. And I'm the same way. I write books. My books all have one goal, to lift up Jesus, but they're written differently to different audiences and even write children's books. And that's a lot different than I write the theological books. Yeah, the Gospels are going to be seen as snapshots taken from different aspects or different perspectives. When you put the whole together, it gives you a more robust understanding of what took place. And yep. as you said, you know, God used uh, men and, and, and used it through the filter of their personality, their experiences, um, you know, their detail to record certain things. And so the, the fact that it's absent in one Gospel versus another doesn't mean it's an omission. No. 
It just simply means it wasn't what, what he was trying to communicate. But when you take them together, that's what the harmony of the Gospels is all about, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Do most Christians you know, know if you can buy a copy of the Harmony in the Gospels? I don't know. I know I haven't asked this question in my congregation, but there are actual people that have now put all four Gospels together oh, yeah. in, a, in a chronological harmony. And that's available. You can buy one and read it that way. I think that's a marvelous idea. Jeff? Yeah, this is this is only one account out of hundreds, probably, that are uh, differences between the between the Gospels. I've done a detailed study of the parables, for example. There's at least... 10, 12 parables that are in Matthew that aren't in the others. There's about 10 or 12 that are in Luke that are uh, not in the others. There's a couple parables in Mark that are, that only are in the book of Mark. So you have, and then John doesn't have any parables in it at all. So you have uh, a different people with different backgrounds writing about the same events, but emphasizing different things. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me know what questions you have. Text them over 877-933-2484. Here's a question. I was reading 1 Corinthians 8, 9 to 13, and you know that goes, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So the question is, what is the danger for us today? Is it becoming an unfaithful steward who neglects the link between God and the visible world? That's an excellent question. Well, one of the the uh, considerations, and it, it's true in parenting as well, um, depending on the maturity of the child will determine what you share with them, what you teach them, and to what depth you share and teach them. So consequently, sometimes truth can be very wounding to somebody that doesn't know how to handle it. And so consequently, um, in this particular case, while this person uh, hasn't come maybe necessarily to the maturity of understanding that all food is is available, as Peter was told by God, um, that you want to be sensitive to them while you are coming alongside of them and living and sharing the gospel so that you can bring them one step closer to their spiritual maturity. So you don't want to offend them um, in the process of bringing them to a closer walk with God. All right, we'll take a break. No, Paul, and come, oh, I'm sorry, Jeff. No, go continue. ahead. Go no, ahead. Go take ahead. a break. All right. Well, we'll I was do... just going to say, Paul, <laughs> Paul says, oh, there's a little delay here. Paul says that there is, he became all things to all people so that he might save some. I mean, you just see this Paul uh, saying if he was going to go to preach the Jews, he wouldn't bring his pork sandwich along with <laughs> him, right? He would he would act like a Jew to try to convince the Jews, even though he had freedom to eat whatever he wanted. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll take a break and come back. Let me know what questions you have for the Guide Talk panel. I've got Greg B., Tom P., and Jeff V. ready to answer your questions. 877-933-2484. Be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. I do love the afternoon part of the day. People have usually gone about their day, their business. They've gone to work, and now they're maybe heading home, and they're trying to they're trying to uh, process the day and yeah, decompressing, decompress a little, and they they tune in to Faith Radio because they they might be beat up, they might be tired, they might need some hope, they might need some encouragement, they might just need a smile. You know, you never know. But I always appreciate the fact that you guys so faithfully will agree to be here on uh, Thursdays. And to spend a couple hours answering questions, and I know it's a joy for all of us, and the fellowship is one of the great things about sure. this time together, is mm-hmm, I get mm-hmm. to hang with my pals, which is yeah. nice. Well, yeah, and having level three conversations, I, I love the deep conversations, especially brought up by by you folks out there, and the questions that you raise. I mean, you know, we're not, there used to be the shell answer, man, I don't know if you remember this on commercials, way long ago, but that Shell answer man for Shell Gas always knew the answer, no matter what. And so oftentimes pastors are treated like the Shell answer man, that they should have the answers. Well, you know, for the audience, we're all in the process of becoming, yet not having arrived. We're all still growing and learning. And sometimes your questions compel me, I'll just talk to me personally, to do further research. Now I might come back on the Tuesday show or maybe even the Thursday show and share what I learned, stimulated by the very question that you asked. So thank you. Well, and this show gives me hope, and I, I mean that sincerely. There is so much anger in the world, so much chaos, so much deception, so much pain. That to get these questions and to have this time to talk about the Word of God and about Jesus and the hope that he offers is astounding, mm-hmm. and I'm thankful. Yeah. Well, if you just joined us, welcome to the Shell Answer Man, formerly Guy Talk. <laughs> <laughs> You guys apparently know all the answers, so let's just switch names. No, I guess we're not going to do that. All right, uh, let's see. I am interested in, I had the question all queued up. Here we go. I'd like to learn more about how and what is discernment. Mm. How and what is discernment? Okay, um, first of all, discernment is not only the ability to determine what the intent is in either an action or or somebody communicating with you, but to be able to project what the implications are of that statement or that declaration, which takes wisdom, really. So it's one thing to become aware and acknowledge and comprehend what somebody is is saying. It's a totally different thing to be discerning about it. And oftentimes, there's a lot behind what somebody has said. When you see somebody face-to-face, for instance... It isn't so much what they say, it's the body language, the nonverbals that, or like you talk about, Bill, about the tone. You just can't wait to be in heaven to find out the tone of what certain yeah. people have, have said. So the intonation, the tone, and everything else. So it, the, the whole idea about discernment is looking beyond the words and getting a sense of what is really being said and what the implications of that are. It's a good way to define it. I like that, and I would agree with that 100%. You know, you look around the world today, and it just seems like finding truth is getting harder and harder and harder. And I think that's true both um, in a a political sense, in a scientific sense. Um, I mean, where do we go anymore? 
to find truth. Do you, do you believe what you're reading in the media about world events and about, uh, you know, uh, whatever it can be. I don't, I don't want to get too political here, but about uh, different things that are going on in this world. But I, I know this. I know that the word of God is true. I know that I can trust God's word. It goes to what we were talking about earlier, that because he sees things in reality and that he only speaks truth, I can, and I know that the word of God is reliable and reliable and true. And I, I know I can trust that truth. And that's what we do here for a couple hours every Thursday is we are anchoring ourselves in the word of God. It teaches us. And as we read from 2 Timothy uh, 3.16 earlier, it's good for training in righteousness. And so this is a, a huge anchor for me. Whatever else is going on in this world, whatever lies are being spread throughout the world in so many different ways, I know I can come back to God's word and be anchored in truth. I, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, but the Greek word for discern is anacrino in the New Testament. And it, it's, it means to distinguish or to separate out by diligent search and examination. So it's just not regurgitating whatever comes to your mind. That's not real discernment because you thought you've connected the dots. It's really going to be able to discriminate, to make determinations, to to understand the implications and the import of what's being said or communicated. And what I wish we'd do more in the local church is exactly what we're doing here because it is in the discussion format and the going back and forth. And Greg brings a piece into it I hadn't thought about. Bill does. Jeff does. We don't normally get that in the local church, even in a Sunday school setting or an adult setting. And as a result, those one another passages that talk about, you know, uh, encouraging one another, you know, uh, exhorting one another, we don't often get a chance to do that because the church isn't set up that way. We need to find ways to do that so that in our teaching or whatever we do, uh, even sermons, it'd be very nice if, if we broke for 15 minutes after the sermon and said, what questions do you have? Mm. What we're doing here? Because people need to, discernment means they take in the truth and then they find a way to accurately apply it to life. Well, discernment yeah. and wisdom are direct corollaries. Yep. And the fact of the matter is you've got to determine what's going to inform, condition, and establish your wisdom or your discernment. What are you using as a backdrop to draw from? So for us as followers of Christ, to me, the most essential piece that we have to draw from is a biblical worldview yes. and to understand how God sees the world, how he engages the world, how he understands the world. That takes wisdom. That's why we need to rely on the word of God. If you want to develop discernment, you need to go ahead and bathe in the word of God. And it's not just an individual process of getting in the word of God and discerning it. It is also doing it together as a group. Yep. That's where the body of Christ yeah. comes in. And the, and the Bible uh, calls us to be discerning. We, we should yeah. be discerning. Now, 1 mm -hmm. John 4 says to test every spirit. We are to guard our doctrine closely. Uh, Acts says that we, like the Bereans, should be, should be searching the scriptures every day to see if what we're being taught is true. And that's true whether you're, you're hearing stuff on the radio from your pastor in an article, whatever. We, individual, individual Christians, should be searching the scripture to determine whether or not what we're hearing is true. So we should be very discerning uh, in our Christianity. Mm. All right. Gentlemen, how would you share Jesus with a family uh, member who is in the Hindi religion? Well, it's good to do a little research on what Hindi religion teaches. Agree. So, you know, you get that basis done. I know this from my limited understanding is Hindi religion doesn't really offer forgiveness, really doesn't offer a lot of assurance. And... Uh, 
it's tied up a lot with the reincarnation in the end. That's where yeah, I mean, one of the things you have to yeah. decide right away is whether or not there's millions of gods or whether or not there's exactly. one God. So the very start of this is, are you going to be polytheist or are you going to be monotheist, right? So Hinduism is one of the religious systems of the world that believes in millions of God. Um, you know, one of the practices in, in Hinduism that I, I find uh, interesting in a way is oftentimes when you go into a Hindu temple, uh, you'll see people clap or make noises and that's mm -hmm. to wake up their gods and, you know, so that they can talk to them or bring their request to them or whatever. Uh, I'm sure glad that I worship one God. He knows my name and he never sleeps. Well, with the, here's the thing. When you have somebody in your family that has this belief system, there is a tendency to stay away from discussions or to talk about these things because we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. So number one, I would say do some basic study. There are great materials out there that give you an understanding. Second thing is engage that person respectfully in discussions about their belief system and then share with them your belief system and why it gives you peace and hope. Because even in uh, Hindi, uh, that whole background, and I've been over to those countries, I've been among those people, I've lived in their villages, they don't have the hope we have. They're looking for it. And you've got something to offer they don't have, and you have a chance to share it. Yeah, there's some very key distinctions. I mean, you mentioned reincarnation, Tom. Um, you know, uh, Hindus believe that the soul is reincarnated over and over again. The scriptures tell us that it's appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. Um, there's this law of karma in Hinduism where people uh, kind of get what they, you know, what they deserve or what their words or deeds uh, bring to them. They believe in kind of creation is an, is an endless cycle where the Bible says that there's a beginning and there's an end. There's an edge to this day, uh, uh, end of this age. Uh, I mean, um, so there's some serious, uh, significant differences between the worldview system of Christianity, biblical Christianity and Hinduism. So, uh, you know, you can start there. Uh, but in the end, the most important question is, who do men say that I am? Yeah, what do you do with the yeah. person of Jesus Christ? Uh, is he All right, we'll be right back. We're listening to Guy Talker, Guys Who Talk. We're also having a little bit of technical problems, which we'll solve. But if you have a question, let, let us know. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. The Bible is valuable, and reading and studying the Bible can transform your life. Hi, I'm Angela Smith, host of Reading the Bible Together podcast. Several times a year, we release a new Reading the Bible Together study. We've studied Luke, Daniel, Advent, Lent, and so many more. You can access all of our studies for free by going to the Reading the Bible Together resource page at myfaithradio.com. In addition to the studies, we also have the accompanying podcast. You can listen wherever you listen to podcasts. You can study on your own, or if your small group or Bible study is looking for what to study next, check out the Reading the Bible Together resource page at myfaithradio.com. Welcome to Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. I've got Greg B., Tom P., and Jeff V. as my uh, power panel today. Any questions you have or comments, let me know, 877-933-2484. 
This question pops up regularly, and I know it's a concern for many, so I never mind addressing it. That's this. What do you all have to say about losing one's salvation? Where can you point me to read about this? I hear that a lot out of people. I think it's a big concern. I think the, the scriptures are pretty definitive on the work of Jesus and what he's done and his shed blood. But I think the devil is pretty good at continually saying to us, are you really sure? Have you done enough? Have you really worked that out? So what I tell people is this, and I can give them the theological arguments, and I go back and forth on that. But with a lot of people, I simply say to them, where do you stand with Jesus right now? Well, he's my Lord and Savior. I said, that's all you need. Hmm. And, And I encourage people, when you get up in the morning, the first thing you should do is raise your hands toward the Lord and say, you are my Lord and Savior this day. I'm committed to you, and no matter what happens, I'm going to serve you. Because I don't think most of us have a lot of people assuring us in life, and most people are not enough into Scripture to put all that theological thinking together. And it's a shame because people want that assurance. You know, one of the things that we need to, to consider is, and when we come up with some of these questions, this is not a criticism, but just a, a reflection of, 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 I think, reality, is that when we place ourselves on the throne of understanding, then we're going to equivocate because if all we have to go back on are our feelings or whether or not mm-hmm. we feel we're saved or not saved, instead of relying in, on the truth, which places Jesus and his word on the throne of authority. When you take a passage like, for instance, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it's important to understand. It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we either take that as truth or not. So what does it mean to be sealed? Sealed can either mean that the Holy Spirit protects and preserves Christians until they reach their inheritance, and there are a number of passages that that will give you that impression, or that he certifies the authenticity of their acceptance by God as being genuine, that they bear the royal seal, if you will, according to John 3.33 and Acts 10.44 and 47. So the first interpretation seems the best here, though both they're biblically true, but seal can mean either that the Holy Spirit protects and preserves or that he certifies. So here's what the Word of God says. We either believe it or we don't. Let me jump in. I love this can I, jump I love in? this question. Jeff, can I oh, jump yeah. in go real ahead, quick Bill. before you, yeah. you go yeah. on? Um, in the, I think it's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. The Bible says we were once children of disobedience and wrath. But apparently when we come to faith, we've switched families. Now we're children of God by faith. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So it sounds like switching families is possible. Could we go back the other direction? Mm. I mean, parents, have they've disinherited their kids. They've said, you are too rebellious. Um, we're not... We're not having you in our lives anymore. But the scripture is clear that when you're born into the family of God, you're adopted into that family. There's nothing that you can do that's going to remove you from that family. Um, uh, You can break fellowship. Mm -hmm. You can have disagreement. You can remove yourself physically from church or from other fellow Christians. But the fact that you become an adopted child, nobody's going to... Um, say that those adoption papers are no longer valid because when God adopts you into your family, you're right, Bill, you're under new management. 
You've been given a new passport. You're citizens of the kingdom of God. You might not be a great citizen. You may even be a poor citizen. But nevertheless, you're a citizen, period. This is one of my favorite questions. I think it's one of my favorite questions. And we get it often on Guy Talk. I get it in my classes often as well. uh, Because I had this same question. When I first started studying scripture, this idea or question of whether or not we have true assurance of salvation or not kept nagging me. And I would read one article or, or, or person and I would kind of lean one way and then I'd read somebody else and I'd lean another way. But you know what verse really sealed it for me? And it was, Greg, it was the verse that you read from Ephesians 1 that says mm-hmm. that once we believe, we're, we receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That's right. And then I started reading the rest of the New Testament. And you, you come to places like First Peter 1, which says that once you're saved, you're given a new birth and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. What's that passage until the again, coming Jeff? First, First Peter 1, 3 through 5. Well, that's worth memorizing. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That means that our salvation is kept for us and is shielded by God's power. It's not up to us. It's up to God. Yeah, we are yeah. God's possessions. We've been bought and we have been bought and sealed and we are his for all of eternity. He gives us the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit will be with us forever. And we can know that we know that we know that we have eternal life. First John 5 says. Where does apostasy fit into this conversation? Well, I think apostasy is uh, apostasy or apostasy in the, in the Greek is a, is is generally is considered a falling away from truth. So it's when we believe false things. I think uh, who said I can't remember who said that uh, um, uh, one of the things that Satan tries to do is steal our joy. Mm-hmm. Well, I also think he tries to steal our assurance that once we're saved, we're God's possession and he holds us in our hands. And I think one of the areas that the enemy tries to to work at every single believer is take away that assurance from us, bring doubt into our lives instead of having that anchor, that assurance, being that oak of righteousness that's planted and and secure in Christ Jesus. Yeah, Jeff, you're referring to the Greek word uh, apostasia, which means simply a a defiance of an established system or authority. It's a rebellion, an abandonment, or a breach of faith. So it's it's a it can be a temporary turning your back on God. It can be turning your back on God until the the day that you recognize God's going to be calling you home. So it's possible to go ahead and deny the faith, but not lose your faith. All right, this is a great discussion that will continue uh, after the top of the hour. We're going to take a short break. But hour two of Guy Talk is ahead, and this is where we're going to pick up, because this has still got a lot of meat on the bone. So if you have a question, let me know what you have, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back with hour two of Guy Talk. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.